Tonight I'm uh, really pleased to uh, introduce our speaker, Monsignor Matthew Midas. Monsignor Midas grew up in South St. Louis City at St. Francis de Sales Parish. He attended St. Pius V grade school and upon graduation Prep South Seminary, Cardinal Glennon College, and Kenrick Seminary. He was ordained to the priesthood in 1979 and has served in parishes all over the Archdiocese including in Jefferson County, Franklin County, and St. Genevieve Counties. And he served here at St. Gerard in 1996 to 99. Seems like a century ago, Monsignor. For 14 years, uh, Monsignor Midas served as spiritual director to the Missionaries of Charity at St. Teresa's uh, of Calcutta Sisters, and as the founder and head of the Archdiocesan Reclamation Project for 18 years. In 2008, Raymond Cardinal Burke named Monsignor Midas as a chaplain to the Holy Father. Monsignor Midas currently serves as the pastor of St. Angela Marisi Parish in Florissant, Missouri, after serving 13 years as pastor of Immaculate Conception Parish in Union, Missouri. Please join me in welcoming Monsignor Midas back to the sacristy. Well, thank you, it's great to be home. <laughs> was my home for three years. Uh, St. Angela Marisi, where I am right now, is actually in Shoveltown, believe it or not. Uh, there actually is a Shoveltown, and that's where St. Angela Marisi is. I've, for years, I've listened to the radio in my car and hear them talk about Shoveltown in joking. I thought the place didn't exist. When I found out I was going to St. Angela's, I Googled on the map, and sure enough, the word Shoveltown was right on top of my house, you know. And so just as Dogtown is Dogtown, where I live is called Shoveltown. And it's great to be here back at St. Gerard's. Now, when I was here, there was a raging controversy because about half the parish called it St. Gerard's, and the other half called it St. Jared. Now, I don't know what side you're on, but I'm just gonna say it was the older people who called it St. Jared's. <laughs> and uh, apparently one of the early redemptorists insisted that it was St. Jared and not St. Gerard. I always called it St. Gerard, happy to be back. Well, my topic this evening is, has the coming of Christ made a positive difference in the world? And the answer, of course, is yes. Thank you. <laughs> I say that facetiously, although I will say this, um, I don't know if they still do this in Rome, but there used to be uh, every year a big lecture given by one of the real high-powered theological minds of the church in Rome. And during the war years, Second World War, it hadn't been done. So for the first time in 1946, in many, many years, they had the big lecture and they had a big lecture hall and all the great Dominicans and Jesuits and Franciscans and all the great cardinals were there for the talk. It was being given by Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, who wound up ultimately being the mentor to St. John Paul II, helped him get his doctoral degree. 
and he was going to talk about De Uno Deo, on the one God. And Father Lagrange got up in the pulpit, and he looked at the congregation, and he said, God, 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 God. And he walked off the stage. That was it. That was the whole talk. And you think about it, it's really, that's what it came down to. What, what else can you say, really? But the whole idea is that, you know, uh, you, you, you would think that it, when God becomes a human being and walks among us, he'd have a positive influence on the world. I'm reading a book right now written by a man named Dr. Richard Gallagher. It's called Demonic Foes. And Dr. Gallagher is a psychiatrist who's been working with exorcists for the last 25 years. And uh, it's a, a hair-raising book. I mean, ooh, some of the stuff. But the one thing he says, which is very comforting, is that the devil can't make you do anything. I don't care what Flip Wilson said. The devil can't make you do it. You know, he just can't. The problem on the other side is God can't make you do anything either. If we cooperate with God, if we cooperate with the teachings of Christ and his church, that's pretty much up to us. And that's the whole point. You know, uh, scholars have, have surmised whether or not all the parables of Christ were given in response to a specific question. We know that some were. For example, the parable of the Good Samaritan was given in response to a guy who said, and who is my neighbor? Well, the answer to the question, who is your neighbor, was the parable of the Good Samaritan. So a lot of scholars have extra extrapolated from that and thinking that all of Jesus' parables were given response to questions. The problem is they're not mentioned in the New Testament. But it doesn't stop these guys. They're very clever, actually. And I remember reading the once about the, uh, the parable of the sower and the seed, how one scholar surmised, and this is just speculation, but it's an interesting point. He said that somebody once upon a time asked Jesus this question very pointedly. If you are the Son of God, if you are the second person of the Blessed Trinity, if you are the incarnate Word of God in human form walking among us, how come you haven't made a bigger splash? I mean, you really only have like 90 people you can count on, 12 apostles, 72 disciples, your mother, a few cousins, you know, that's pretty much your, the only people you can count on. You would think that God would make a bigger splash. And Jesus' answer to that was, well, you know, a guy went out sowing seed one day and he just scattered the seed to the wind and some of it fell on the beaten path, some fell among the thorns, some fell upon this and that, and finally some fell on good soil. The point he was making is that the seed is the word of God. Uh, nothing wrong with the seed. The seed is perfectly fine. There's plenty wrong with the soil that it lands on. And that has always been the problem in history. That the gospel is true, it's always been true, it's the truth that cannot fade, it's the truth that will set us free. The problem is <laughs> a lot of the people that have to try to believe it. Uh, many of them come up short, and that is the, the big problem. Um, and I think that it's interesting, the, the first one they talk about is the beaten path. I want to go into this a little bit because I'm going to make this point later on. Uh, back in Jesus' time, there were two kinds of roads. There was the King's Highway, and there was the Beaten Path. Now, the King's Highway was just like John the Baptist. He said, go out in the desert, make a highway for our God. Raise the valleys, lower down the hills, make the crooked way straight, the rough places smooth. 
And the kings would do that because this was a road that his armies and his messengers would travel and they had to move lightning fast. And so the king's highway was smooth and straight and paved and all this kind of stuff, not crooked. And only the king's armies and his messengers could use it. Everybody else had to use the beaten path, which usually is like a cow path. But the thing is that so many people for so many centuries had walked this way that it didn't need to be paved. It was so hard compacted that the seed, of course, couldn't penetrate, and that's kind of the way it was. When I left St. Gerard's, I went down to St. Genevieve, in St. Genevieve, and I still would come up and visit my parents on Sunday nights. And there were two ways to get to St. Gen from my mom and dad's house in South County. You could take Highway 55, the King's Highway, smooth and flat and straight and go fast, or you could take Highway 6167, which was an old cow path, basically. Uh, an old anthropologist told me that you know, it was the cows that you know, started Highway 61, then the Indians, then the French colonials, and finally the county paved it. But it goes up and down and snakes all over the place. And that's the difference between the two kinds of roads. The whole idea, my brothers and sisters, is, again, um, there's all kinds of obstacles to um, what Jesus came to teach us, and the obstacles really are found in us. You know, we have two different versions of the Lord's Prayer, one in St. Luke's Gospel and one in St. Matthew's, and the difference is very simple. There are two extra lines in St. Matthew's Gospel that you don't find in St. Luke's Gospel. And in both cases, um, the extra line explains the line that comes before it. Pope Francis caused kind of a stir recently uh, by saying that he wanted a new translation of the Lord's Prayer. He wasn't happy with the line, lead us not into temptation. Well, it's explained by the next line, but deliver us from evil. Okay, that's what lead us not into temptation means. The other one for which there's an extra line is very interesting. Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? It means thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is God's will done in heaven? Perfectly. Nobody complains, nobody gets out of, you know, disobeys. Nobody raises any kind of objection. It's just God wills this and it's done. And to the extent to which we accept that principle and take God's will and put it into practice, then God's will is done here on earth as it is in heaven and God's kingdom has come. That's what the coming of the kingdom really is all about. The problem, however, is that, again, people uh, tend to wander off. They don't get it, they don't listen, uh, they get distracted, whatever, but the, you know, the message gets lost. G.K. Chesterton, the great G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite guys, I think he said it best and most succinctly as he usually did. He said, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's been found to be very difficult and therefore very few people have given it a decent try. But wherever it's tried, it works. For example, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Now this is the core teaching of Jesus Christ, the basic message of Christ, and it's there for all of us to believe. But it's interesting to me that probably the greatest proponent of, and uh, the person who accessed the Sermon on the Mount and made the most use of it in recent times wasn't a Catholic wasn't even a Christian, he was a Hindu. I'm talking about Mohandas Gandhi. He heard the Sermon on the Mount and he said, hey, that really is wisdom. That's how I'm gonna start my campaign uh, against the British. 
the whole understanding is that the Sermon on the Mount, you say, well, you turn the other cheek, you go the extra mile, you lend without expecting repayment, uh, you get hit, but you don't hit back. Now, sociologists and different people called that passive resistance. He, that's not what he called it. He called it satyagraha, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which I believe in Hindi means the power of love. In other words, it's not our place to punish the British because they're sinners, but we're sinners too. You know, we're all sinners together. How can we possibly stand in judgment of them? What we're going to do is point out to them without ever hitting back, without ever raising, you know, a, 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 a weapon in anger, that what they're doing is wrong and it will hurt them. And so it was and so it did. The whole idea is that the message of Christ is to change the world. And if we follow the message of Christ, it really does happen. There's a great scene in the movie Gandhi. I hope you've seen it. It's a, it won the best picture, I think, in 1981 or 82. And uh, Gandhi is still in South Africa uh, where they have the apartheid. And he, as a colored, was not allowed to walk on the sidewalk. But he's walking on the sidewalk with this uh, Anglican minister. And these two tough South African young men see this and they're outraged and they come up to confront him. Those of you who are most astute would recognize that one of those toughs was the, a very young Daniel Day-Lewis. It must have been his first movie role. But anyway, they come up. And as they, they see these two tough guys coming toward them, uh, the Anglican minister says to Gandhi, you know, maybe we better get off the sidewalk, you know. And Gandhi says, but don't your scriptures tell you that you must be ready to receive blows, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, etc." And this guy says, yeah, I, I think he meant that metaphorically. I don't think he meant to take it literally. You know? <laughs> that was a great line, you know. And Gandhi said, no, I'm going to stand up to them because I've seen this work. When you don't back down, and, but, you know, but don't you know, get angry and get violent, their hatred for you goes down and their respect for you increases. Oh, a policy that actually worked. It's amazing, again, you know, uh, very difficult to do things that way, but when it's tried, it works. And Gandhi, to just point of fact, liberated India from the control of the British without ever firing a shot. Nothing. All peacefully, all done with, through the power of love. It's amazing how that works. And, uh, and Martin Luther King embraced the same principles when he started the civil rights movement here in our country. Again, nonviolence, the power of love. But it was the point of church that Christ and the church he founded to change the world. That's the, and otherwise, why did God come here? If he's not going to change the world, then what's the point of coming? Back in the 1850s, uh, they discovered a document that had been missing for many centuries. They knew it existed because there were quotes in it from other sources, but we didn't have a copy of the document itself. It's a document that's known to us as the Didache, which is Greek for teaching. It was the teaching of the 12 apostles. And it's interesting that this book, um, it basically, it goes back to the apostles and it's their game plan on how to deal with the world. Jesus said, you are in the world, you're not of the world, we're here to change the world. And it's written in two sections. The first is a sort of a spiritual uh, exposition of, of the way of darkness and the way of light. But the second part is very, very interesting because it's a list, a top 10 list of the things that the, Catholic, the church is gonna change in the Roman world. 
They go one through ten. These are the ten things we're going to, these are things are wrong. These things got to go and we're going to change them or die trying. Guess what number one on that list was? Abortion. <laughs> Very interesting. Very interesting. This is not just a scruple that we've come up with in recent times. It's something the church has always been about. But again, we've been trying to change the world. So I've come up with a short list here of a lot of things that the church has changed. Um, and the whole understanding, again, is that, you know, the context is, this is the, again, vis-a-vis -vis the Roman Empire and the Judaism of Jesus's time. With that as a background, you know, how did the church change the way of thinking on different things and improve the lot of society? Probably the most prominent in the first way is slavery. Now, slavery is a classic example of the beaten path. It had been around for centuries, for millennia. Uh, I dare say everybody in this church is descended from a slave, if you go back far enough, because slavery was a a way, big part of life back in ancient times. And sadly, you know, it still exists in the world today in some places. But the whole idea is that um, this is something that the, the, the world came gradually to see, but it was the church that pushed them in that, that direction to see this is something wrong. It was back in the 16th century that the Pope issued a decree that it is wrong to enslave people just because of their race. And that it, it issued an excommunication for those who did. And that excommunication is still on the books. The problem is that an awful lot of people thought that slavery in this country, and Lincoln was one of them, thought that slavery would just go away on its own. That it was economically untenable, it was not feasible. That if you just let the institution go, it would probably just disappear the economics themselves would dictate that. Well, what happened was the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, in which the, the um, principle of po popular sovereignty, where all the, all the new states could vote for themselves, whether it be slave or free, popped in. And also the Dred Scott case. Uh, the Dred Scott case meant that the slaves were just property. That's all they were. Uh, they were not human beings, they were chattels and they could be treated as chattels. And if a guy f moves from Alabama, say to Minnesota, from a slave state to a free state, he can certainly take his mule and his horse and that's still his property. Same thing for his slaves. He can take them into Minnesota and they're still slaves. Even though they're living in a free state, they're still enslaved because they're his property. And that part doesn't change. And so in other words, uh, every free state becomes de facto a slave state because the slaves could be there, you know, they had been enslaved in the South. And on top of that, uh, slavery <laughs> was very profitable. The cotton gin, the invention of that made it so. And also, um, a lot of people thought that, you know, if we could just, uh, if everybody, that, probably, that everybody thought that people who were paid a wage would be better employees than people who were slaves. They'd work harder because they're working for an incentive of being paid. That didn't pan out. Uh, sadly, what happened was uh, a lot of the people you paid money to, um, I hate to rip on the Irish on St. Patrick's Day, but uh, <laughs> you got some drunken Irishman showing up to swing a pick and he's either hung over or drunk and he's gonna put a pick through somebody's head or else he gets mad and quits in the middle of the job and walks off or else he organizes a union or starts a union or joins a union and goes on strike, um, these guys were, were a problem. Whereas a slave, 
You didn't have to worry about it. Their incentive to work was not getting beaten, you know. Um, but you could, you could tell them they, they could, had to go to bed at night, they had to, couldn't drink, they had to get up, at, and, every, and you had total control over them. In fact, Thomas, remember the, there was a play years ago called 1776, and it was a musical about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Maybe you've seen it. Um, I like the thing, but it took me a while to get used to seeing Benjamin Franklin and John Adams singing and dancing. That just uh, took a while for me to get adapt to that. But there's a very poignant scene in the film where uh, Jefferson is talking about freedom for all Americans, including the slaves. And the representative from North Carolina takes him to task and says, but Jefferson, you're a hypocrite because you have slaves. And Jefferson said, yes, but I mean to emancipate my slaves. At which point, oh, he's going to emancipate. Oh, what a great guy. He never did, you know. Uh, Monticello lost so much money that the only money-making thing he had was his slaves. He emancipated a few of them, but most of them he did not. Uh, the, the economics argued against it. So what was it that finally brought slavery to an end here in the United States? Well, it was Christianity. It was people like Wilberforce in England and the abolitionists here in the United States. It had nothing to do with economics. It wasn't a system that collapsed. It wasn't going to collapse. It was, if anything else, it was going to become more prosperous. The motivation to overcome outlaw slavery was just the understanding that slaves are not property. They are human beings. And because they're human beings, you cannot treat them like chattels. You cannot treat them as you would your mule. And um, it's just something that is completely wrong. It denies their personhood. Well, that's basically how that went. Another th the other things um, that the church has been a big part of over the centuries, the church has elevated the status of women. Uh, in Judaism, especially the Judaism of Jesus' time, women were considered inferior to men. Um, they recognized that their women were, you know, that Eve was the one who corrupted Adam. Well, yeah, I guess, you know, and they blamed her for it. And they also had blood taboos. Uh, the Jews were not allowed to touch blood. Uh, and let's face it, women have that time of the month when they bleed, and that's looked upon as a curse from God. So obviously there's an inferiority here. Uh, you couldn't teach them to read. They couldn't sit with men in the synagogue. They were considered essentially impure. Um, and uh, they were not eligible for circumcision, which made men superior. The more rituals like this you could go through, the men, you know, you were a better human being. And it was the church who stepped in and said, no, uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Uh, that women are equal to men in status before God. And different, of course, and we always say vive la difference, you know, it's wonderful for us. But the whole idea is that the church has elevated the status of women. The church has ennobled children. In Roman time, in Roman law, a child was the absolute property of his father. Uh, the father, first of all, when the kid was born, they would take the baby and put it at the father's feet. Um, if the father thought the baby was not formed properly, like had spina bifida or some other kind of problem like that, or was kind of scrawny or colicky or whatever reason he didn't want the kid, uh, he would just let the kid lay there at his feet, in which case that meant this kid is out. So they would take the kid and put him in the forest to be exposed, to die of 
be eaten by wild animals, die of starvation, whatever. Now, point of fact, a lot of people who wanted children and couldn't have them would go to the forest and find these children and raise them, you know, surreptitiously, but still in all, that was done. In fact, a father had absolute control over his children, even as adults. You know, if, the, if a kid got on the old man's nerves, he could have the guy put to death. And that was perfectly within his rights. Um, that's the way the, the Romans looked at these things. That children had a really rough, rough time through all this stuff. Again, the church stepped in and said, no, you can't do this. This is wrong. This has got to change. The sanctity of the marriage bond. Oh, yes. Um, in Judaism, and this is the famous episode in St. Matthew's Gospel where they come up to Jesus and say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And uh, the answer to that, of course, was yes. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, first verse, it says, if the woman shall find disfavor in her husband's eyes, let him dismiss her with a written decree of divorce. And that's all he has to do. Um, she, he could divorce her because, now there were two different understandings of that. One was very strict, the Rabbi Shammai, and he said, uh, the only reason, the only way you can find disfavor in your husband's eyes is if, you know, you are unfaithful. Um, now he had a big definition of unfaithful, which included bathing in the same bath water that a different man had bathed in. Use your imagination on that one, I don't know. But Hillel, the, the great rabbi said, well, Find disfavor means find disfavor. You know, if he finds somebody he likes better, A has found favor, B has found disfavor. That's it, you know. Um, she doesn't iron his newspaper like a good butler would do. He can divorce her for that. If the coffee is a bit too chewy and grainy, well, get ready. Those are literally grounds for divorce. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I don't, don't get ugly. <laughs> Now, could the woman divorce him for any reason? No, oh no. Well, she could divorce him, but only if he didn't put a roof over her head. Uh, he had to keep a roof over her head and food on her plate, but she had to put a smile on his face. <laughs> That's what that comes down to. Um, and that, 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 now, frankly, you know, a lot of people didn't get divorced because it cost money. You know, if you got divorced, you had to pay back the dowry with interest, and a lot of people didn't want to do that. But it was a possibility, and um, the whole idea is that it was, and it was based on the idea that uh, a woman is a chattels. She belongs to her parents, and now her dad pays a dowry to the groom to make her belong to him now. And she, but she, again, through all this, she is just a chattels. And again, you know, Jesus corrected them and said, well, that's, you know, that's the old law, but that's not the way it was in the beginning. In the beginning, God made the male and female and declared for this reason a man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, the two become as one. Thus they are no longer two but one flesh and let no man separate what God has joined. And this, the stability of the marriage bond is a great benefit to society. The society that plays fast and loose with the marriage bond is on the short route to chaos and destruction, period. There's no dispute on that. Um, the church, the, you know, the church, and the church has always been really strict about that. Um, you know, I get asked all the time how the church can be so unfeeling and so, you know, un uncompassionate in dealing with people who get divorced. I say, well, it's not really, you know. Uh, God expects them to live up to this, you know. Um, it's what the master said. 
Uh, we, we get, we're not authorized to change this. Even the Corinthians came to Paul apparently and said, look, you mean you, you got to stay married to the same woman? Are you crazy? And Paul said, look, this is not from me. This is from the Lord, you know. The Lord was death on divorce. And, um, and the church is the same way. It has to be. And the world is a better place for it because we need really stable marriages. That's, you know, without that, we're really in trouble. The one thing that the church established, too, is the dignity of human labor. Um, most of the ancient peoples looked upon labor, especially hard physical labor, as a curse. Uh, that's why the, the rich never broke a sweat, you know. Once you were rich, that's it. Your working days were over, and that's, that's the way it was. Uh, labor is for the peons. Labor is for the people who don't have money. Labor is a curse. It's a bad thing. And we, our understanding is, now we're on the eve of the Feast of St. Joseph, or just about on the eve of St. Joseph, is that work is, it gives us a certain dignity, that through our labor we perfect the imperfections of God's creation, that God, when he created everything, it was perfect, nothing wrong with it. Um, but we are the ones that messed it up because of our sinfulness. It was original sin that caused the problems that we have in the world that even floods and tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes and typhoons and all this other stuff, you name it, is all the consequence of original sin. God didn't plan for any of this. But even when a hurricane hits or a typhoon or anything through human labor, we rebuild, we move on, and we make the world a better place because of it. Um, can't read my own writing here. Okay. We eliminated paganism and the pagan approach to the gods. Let's talk about this. You know, the fathers of the church were pretty much unanimous that the, the pagan gods, like Jupiter and all these people, they were actually demons. And there's very strong evidence for that. Uh, some sociologists argue that the gods were actual people, like Hercules. There actually was a guy, Hercules, and uh, he was just kind of a hero, and they made him a god after he died. Uh, Julius Caesar, of all people, claimed to be descended from the goddess Venus. I don't know if you're aware of that, but he did, and people said, okay, he's Caesar, whatever, you know. But the idea was, if you had asked, now Julius Caesar, whose death we just, you know, anniversary of his death was just Monday, the eyes of March, um, he held many jobs, wore many hats in ancient Rome, and one of them was the high priest of Rome. And if you had asked Julius Caesar as high priest of Rome, do you love the gods and do the gods love you? He would have said, what, are you crazy? You know, love the gods? So what, what, how does that enter into it? Because you just don't. The gods are there to give us favors and we get the favors from the gods by doing one for them. They believe that when you sacrifice an animal to a god, let's say to Zeus, for example, uh, somehow the life essence of that animal is transferred to Zeus making him stronger. And the fact that he has human beings offering him sacrifice, that adds to his prestige among his fellow gods. One can just picture Zeus going, hey, look at me. I'm being sacrificed to. I'm special, you know. And so you did him a favor. And now he owes you one. He is, you are his client. And that was the idea of paganism. Uh, to the pagans, uh, the gods were like a Coke machine. You put in your buck and a half, you get out your 20-ounce bottle of Diet Coke. That's how they were. And that's all the gods were. 
But that's not the true God. The true God is not somebody we try to manipulate, someone who we try to get to do our bidding. The real God, the true God, is for us to worship and to serve, to know him, to love him, and to serve him. And the world has made a much better place uh, because we've got people who are submitting themselves, surrendering themselves, surrendering themselves to the holy will of God. It's a very important thing, and um, we take it for granted. But the whole pagan approach to religion is just totally false religion. And I know there's people who try to tr treat the one true God that way. You know, instead of saying, speak, O Lord, your servant is listening, which is how faithful people talk to God. They say, hey, Lord, I'm your client. I, this is what I need. I, you know. But that's all upside down, inside out, and backwards. The real relationship we have with God is to know him, to love him, and to serve him. Forgiveness, oh yeah. Uh, in a lot of cultures, if you can't hold a decent grudge, you're not much of a man. You know, if you can't hold a grudge for several generations, um, you just, they, they question your manhood. And yet Christ came insisting that we forgive. If Christ says something once, we should listen. This is God talking, if he took time to say it even once, because there's a lot of things that were not written into the Gospels, but it says in the Gospels at least once, you gotta forgive. If he says it twice, you really gotta forgive. If he says it three times, whoa, stop the presses. If he says it four times, stop the world. This is something that God thinks is awfully important. Well, no fewer than four times in the gospel did Jesus say, you gotta forgive, you gotta forgive, you gotta forgive. He backed it up with a parable. You know, the guy that wouldn't forgive the servant who owed him five bucks when he had just been forgiven the debt of trillions of dollars. It's even in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And of all the things that Jesus could possibly reiterate from that prayer, the one he does reiterate is the necessity of forgiving one another. You know, I, uh, you, you look at uh, the world. Um, I had the occasion to travel to Israel in 1978 on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And, you know, we, we had to really be careful because there were bombs going off all over the place and it was kind of you know, scary. We heard a couple of uh, bombs go off in Jerusalem when we were there. And I remember talking with the Israelis and asking them, well, what do you have against the Palestinians? They said, are you kidding? And they would go through a list of, you know, for half an hour of all the stuff that happened last week. You know, let's not talk about going back centuries because they can go back centuries. You ask the Palestinians the same question. What do you got against the Israelis? Are you kidding? And they go through the whole list of stuff that happened last week and then they can go back centuries, generations if necessary. My goodness. I remember going through the Armenian quarter in the old section of Jerusalem. I didn't know there were Armenians. Uh, but I remember reading, there was, it's very interesting, there was a graffiti, a graffito, I should say, spray painted on one of the walls of the buildings that said, Turkey, Armenia remembers 1917. I thought they were talking to me, calling me a turkey, you know. I, Arme I, what they, I, I didn't know what they were talking about. Rem uh, you remember something from like 70 years earlier? What, what's this all about? I found out what it was, and oh my gosh, talk about the genocide of a million and a half people, tortured to death because they weren't Muslim. Oh my gosh, you know, um, that's hard to, hard to let go of. But they still remembered, and they still were looking to get even. 
My brothers and sisters, that's the whole point. Um, we got hotspots in, in Northern Ireland, tribal wars in Africa, oh, you name it. It goes on and on and on. There's a cycle of violence out there. I remember when the St. Louis Blues first came to St. Louis, they had the Plager brothers. Remember the Plager brothers on the team? Barkley, Bob, and there was also a third brother named Billy. Didn't last very long, but they had the three Plager brothers. And they were known to be tough guys and enforcers on the ice. And I remember Dan Kelly or somebody interviewed Bob Plager after a game, and he said, what was it like growing up in the Plager household? And Bob said that, well, when Barkley was in a bad mood, he beat me up. So I, would, I couldn't beat him up because he was bigger than me. So I beat up my brother, Billy. Well, he couldn't beat me up. So we went across the street and beat up our cousin. And then who he beat up, I don't know, you know. <laughs> but that's a pattern, you know, someone beats you up, you either try to get even or you beat somebody else up. My brothers and sisters, that's been going on for centuries in this world. Um, people just not letting go of their grudges. And I'm, I, again, I'm not trying to minimize things. It's hard to let go of a genocide. It's hard to let go of atrocities that are committed on a daily or weekly basis, you know. But I do know this, that the world will never get along. There will never be peace on earth until there is forgiveness, the very thing that Christ mentioned. Because the cycle of violence ends, and this is what I think Gandhi realized most of all. When somebody takes the blows, takes the abuse, takes the violence, takes all the nastiness, and doesn't hit back, who instead says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But then it ends right there, you know. That's why Gandhi was so successful, because what could the British complain about? The, sol the British soldiers that his people killed? There weren't any. The d buildings that were damaged or looted or destroyed? No, there weren't any. Um, there was no look for, desire for revenge, no looking to get even, because no injury had been returned. My brothers and sisters, that's perhaps the best witness the Catholic Church has given to the world, the importance and the necessity of forgiving. And um, it's amazing how much peace there isn't because people don't forgive, and how much peace there is when people do forgive. Jesus ennobled poverty. You know, we had, again, two versions of the, the, the uh, Beatitudes, one in Matthew, one in Luke. In Matthew's version, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke's version, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. That poverty is not a disgrace. It's not something to be looked down upon. It's, in fact, it's, it's a career choice. You can choose to be poor. We have all kinds of people who take vows of chastity, obedience, and, yes, poverty. Because Jesus himself lived in poverty and chose poverty as the way. He could have lived in mansions, he could have had all kinds of servants, he could have had all kinds of luxuries and pleasures, but no, he chose a different way. And by doing that, he made the way of poverty uh, something, you know, not again, actually to be proud of, really. Um, uh, the rich were esteemed in Jesus' time, the poor treated like non-entities. And even though there were obligations to feed the hungry and, and, and all that kind of stuff in uh, Judaism, and even the Romans did it too, it was like, well, you know, we'll get around to it one of these days. But as far as we're concerned, uh, this is a mandate from Christ. You know, Jesus told us in advance, I don't know if, about, well, I don't know about you, but I love those teachers that tell you the, the, the questions that are going to be in the, on the exam before the exam comes. I love those people. Uh, that way you don't have to waste time learning stuff you don't need, you know. Um, 
And Jesus told us that the biggest final exam we're going to face is when we stand before him in judgment. And there's six questions on the test. When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was thirsty, did you give me a drink? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick, did you take care of me? When I was in jail, did you come to visit me? When I was a stranger, did you welcome me? If you can answer yes to all six, you are in like Flynn. If you can't, then as Ricky Ricardo used to say, you're going to have some splaining to do, um, a lot of it. Um, because the poor are the ones who are closest to God. I think one of the best things about Pope Francis when he first got elected became Pope, he talked about the preferential choice for the poor. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, we really need to be thinking those terms. Yet how often when you drive through a poorer section of town and see devastated homes and empty lots and burned out buildings and that kind of stuff, you make the value judgments on the people who live there, you know. Um, it was one of the greatest privileges of my priestly career, uh, the year I spent at St. Edward's Parish in North St. Louis City, living among the poorest of the poor in St. Louis. I tell you folks, <laughs> you know, there are all kinds of canonizable saints. I mean canonizable saints, people who are real, real friends of God. And um, it's that poverty that has made them so. And some people react the other way to poverty. They're criminals, and I'm not denying that at all. But I remember one time going through the old Homer G. Phillips Hospital. Uh, remember the old Homer G.? That was the colored hospital. City number one was the white hospital. And there was a young man from the parish who had been in a drive-by shooting. Now, this is 43 years ago. They had him back then, too, and actually before that. And I'm walking through one of the really big wards that they had. They had a few private rooms, or individual rooms, I should say, but mostly it was big wards of 16 or 20 beds. And there was a lady there who was just praying with all her soul. And I, you could tell she was really talking to God. And I, I, I just was so wrapped up in it. I, I paused at the, at the foot of her bed. And she opened her eyes and she saw me and said, Oh, Reverend, could you please pray with me? And I said, Lady, if I could pray in my life once, like you're praying right now, I would die a very happy man. Um, it's amazing how po what poverty does for people. It really can make you a saint. And again, this is something that takes a Christian perspective, I think, to appreciate. But that's one of the other things that the church has brought to the world. Uh, the church has fought and established the right of private property for all, not just the, the nobles, not just for the titled people. But private property is something that's everybody's right. And the fact that we have rights, you know, uh, it, it tended, when, when the, the United States first got started, there was a big difference between Europe and the United States, the United States being a republic, and that was the difference of status and rights. In Europe, you had status. You were born a peasant, you were born a, an equestrian, you were born a nobleman, you were born a royal. That was your status, and pretty much you stayed that your whole life. Rare indeed was the peasant who became a noble or the noble who became a royal. It happened occasionally, but not that often. Uh, you prob and, and you didn't go the other way either. You know, you couldn't go backwards pretty much. But that's pretty much how it was. But in the United States, you didn't have status. You had rights. Uh, and what you made of yourself, that's what it was, you know, depending on how hard you worked and how well you worked and other things like that. But the church established the idea that everybody has rights.
because we are persons, we are human beings, and you know, life, liberty, property, these are all, you know, Jefferson identified them as the inalienable rights of man. We recognize that, yes, you know, and that's how it goes. Uh, the church has built all these charitable institutions. Just look around. Here in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, you know, apart from the uh, things the government has built, it's all the Catholic Church right after that. I mean, the hospital. I mean, there is a Baptist hospital. There was a Lutheran hospital. There was a Jewish hospital. But then you've got St. Mary's, you've got Incarnate Word, you've got Election Brothers, you've got all these hospitals, that ex Catholic hospitals that exist. We built the hospitals. My grandma was an old-fashioned Catholic, you know, and she was in the old school and so proud of being Catholic. And every time we went down Grand Boulevard from our house in South City up toward Sportsman's Park, first we'd pass the old Deloge Hospital right across from the St. Louis U Medical School. And my grandma would say, yep, there it is, Uncle Sam and the Catholics, you know, the people who got the really nice institutions. We get up to St. Louis University, yep. Uncle Sam and the Catholics get up to the Rock Church, the St. Teresa Church, and, you know, all the way up. Uh, yep, Uncle, Uncle Sam and the Catholics. Besides, the, you know, the, the state and its welfare, what agency helps the poor like nobody else? The Vincent de Paul Society. And this is all money that, you know, is given. I mean, this is not appropriate. There's nobody reaching your pocket and taking money out. This is something that we choose to do. And as a consequence, uh, we've made the world a better place. You know, the early church used to call, look upon itself as a leavening agent. You know, how a little bit of, of yeast makes the whole, this whole big uh, glob of dough, bread dough fluffy and enlightens it. We're a minority. We're not a majority. Uh, we've always been a minority. But we make the world a better place, as we have done certainly here in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Look around. The schools, the hospitals, the orphan asylums, the uh, homes for troubled children, the... Um, you name it, on and, uh, nursing homes, my goodness, on and on and on. If you look at the yearbook of the Archdiocese and all the different Catholic agencies we have to take care of people in special needs, it's tremendous, you know. We've made a difference in the world, a huge difference. The church has also promoted the idea that the purpose of government is to serve, you know. We <laughs> facetiously, I think, call our elected officials public servants. Uh, the reality is, whom are they really serving, you know? Um, it's a sad situation, but it's worse in the rest of the world. There's in an awful lot of parts of the rest of the world, uh, the they see the purpose of government is to get yourself, make yourself rich, you know? My brother uh, worked for a corporation here in the United States. He was kind of a big shot, and he was in Saudi Arabia for five years, and he was an accountant, and um, he was going over the books of the company he worked for, and he noticed that uh, there was $500,000 that was not accounted for. And so he asked the one person, what's this $500,000? And they told him, well, you know, it's the cost of doing business here. Yeah, but what did it go for? Well, you know, <laughs> there's certain things you got to accept. Yeah, but what did it go for? They said, a bribe. <laughs> you had to grease the skids, you had to grease the palms of the royal family to do business there. Oh, okay. And for an awful lot of the world, that's the way it is. The government is not there to serve, but to be served. And um, the church brought the opposite. No, if you're in public life, 
you're a servant. You are truly a public servant, supposed to be that way. Um, you know, this idea of just using everything to make yourself rich is just a bunch of nonsense. Um, one thing we also did is we connected the idea of freedom with responsibility. That freedom isn't just freedom for its own sake, it's just not the license to do whatever you feel like doing. It's like what Jesus said, when much is given to a man, more is expected from him. That when Jesus gives you the ability to do something, you need to do it responsibly. You need to use it to make the world a better place instead of just to aggrandize yourself. With it comes the responsibility to help other people. And, you know, um, again, that's something we have to choose on their own, our own, but that's, you know, how it's supposed to go. And last and most important is Christ gave us a chance to go to heaven. And that's really the main work of Christ. I mean, it's great that he's improved a lot of things here on earth, that a lot of things that used to be problems just aren't problems anymore, or at least, you know, or at least temporal, for the present moment, not problems. But the salvation that Christ won for us from sin, from selfishness, um, and made it possible for us to truly become saints. Um, I was talking with some people before I came here, and they were reading this, or going through this, um, what do they call it, the Old Testament in 60 minutes or something like that, uh, the Old Testament in a year, going through the whole Old Testament. And uh, <laughs> they're, they're getting a, a picture of God that they're not finding all that, that wonderful. Um, you know, maybe if certain people <laughs> have had the same experience. But the whole idea is that these are people living in times you simply could not be saved. Um, I remember many years ago when Magic Johnson announced that he had come down with AIDS. And in those days, there was no cure. There was really not much of a treatment. Now, thank God, you know, they came up with something in his case and a lot of other people's too, they're still around. But in those days, when you got the word, you got AIDS, you're a dead man. And there's nothing can be done about that. Uh, like when the COVID thing first hit, we were hearing all these horror stories about people just getting it and dying within, you know, 36 hours. My gosh, you know, this is terrible. Uh, and a lot of people freaked out over COVID just for that reason, that if you get it, you die. You know, it was, that's just the way it was. Well, that's bad enough. But you picture about living at a time when you commit serious sin, there was no way back to God. There was no baptism. There was no confessional. There was just no way that it could be done. Jesus Christ changed all that. He made it possible for us to be forgiven. Poor old Judas figured what he did was so terrible that he had to kill himself because he might as well. Uh, nobody ever trust me again. Nobody ever think highly of me again. I've just blown everything for all eternity. Judas was a fool. He despaired. Because Jesus Christ came to save us from that. And that's, of course, the most important thing that he has done. Now, the reason why I wanted to talk about this topic is just to say that, you know, the church gets beaten up a lot. You know, uh, people question our relevance, people question our motives, pe people question our operations, our teachings. It was back in the 1960s, I think, that Bishop Sheen made a real, uh, caused a real controversy when he mentioned that Christendom had come to an end. And a lot of people freaked out over that. They said, oh my gosh, they thought he meant Christianity had come to an end. No, 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 he didn't say that. What he did say was Christendom. Now, Christendom was a system of government that absolutely reflected Christian values, Christian teaching, Christian circumstances. 
And Christendom, which a lot of people besmirch and make fun of, they call it the Dark Ages and all that other kind of stuff. Whereas in reality, <laughs> the world hummed pretty well along uh, when our laws and our ways of doing things were governed by Catholic understanding of how things are supposed to go. Um, I guess it was just a few years ago, I heard for the first time a phrase that just chilled me to the bone. The phrase was post-Christian, that we are now in a post-Christian age. Archbishop Rosansky came out to my deanery last week to talk to, the, to get to know us, and uh, he was giving a little background on himself and mentioning how in his diocese up in Springfield, Massachusetts, where he came from when he, before he came to St. Louis, he said it had been described as the most post-Christian diocese in the United States. And I'm thinking, ooh, this is not a good thing. And I see just the way the world is going, you know, and uh, it's, it's a scary thing. As if they're saying, well, Jesus, you had your chance, you blew it, you know, you had it, it didn't work, you blew it. No, it did work, it worked wonderfully, and it works wherever it's applied. The idea is that it's for us who understand these things to fight against those kinds of notions, to really become culture warriors, uh, because the battle is out there, you know. St. Paul talked about real weapons for a real fight, the helmet of righteousness, the no, the head of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Holy Spirit, real weapons for a real fight. When you were baptized, you became a member of the church militant, oh yes, fighting against the power of evil, fighting to hang on to the innocence of baptism, fighting to establish Christ's kingdom here on earth. Again, as Chesterton said, Christianity has been tried and not found wanting, but found difficult, and therefore very infrequently given a try. But every time it is, it changes the world, and it makes it a better place. And I thank you for listening. Thank you.